This morning, we are starting a brand new series called Last Words at the Cross. And this is going to be a great series taking us all across Easter. And um, we're looking at the seven things that Jesus said on the cross all across the various Gospels. And so we'll have a little preview here. Here's um, the next slide, please. Here's some of the things that we're going to be looking at from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the things that were recorded that Jesus said while he was on the cross. It's going to be a great series. And so today we're looking at the first part, which is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, when we think about the cross, the thing about the cross is this was um, an ancient um, torture and execution that had been around the Persians, I think, invented it. But by the time it got to the Romans, they had kind of perfected it. And this was a terrible death, and it could take between hours and days to die on the cross. And it was astonishing that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, that he should say these words, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And you know, wider than that, it's not just Jesus there on the cross forgiving his executioners, but Jesus there was forgiving everyone. You know, the crowds who chanted crucify, his disciples for running away, the soldiers who mocked him, Herod, Pilate. That forgiveness is forgiving all these people, an all-encompassing forgive them that forgives us as well. And the fact that Everyone in that scenario at the time had no idea the enormity of what they were doing. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. I remember back in our pioneering days, Tammy and I used to run a Friday club in Garossi's school, and these little children had never heard of Jesus, and so we decided to work our way through a children's Bible, and the children's Bible had great pictures, and they were introduced to Jesus, they saw the miracles, he was a friend of sinners, and his journey, and when we got to the cross, I remember these 7 to 11-year-olds were horrified, because they had never heard that Jesus went to the cross, and they couldn't believe because of who he is and what he had done, that the soldiers, the baddies, would take him and crucify him. And I want us in this series kind of to take us back to how it all happened, as if we don't know the story, as if we're encountering it for the first time. And so why is Jesus on the cross at this point in history? What has happened? So we're going to look at a little brief recap. And what I've done is taken... You know, rather than read like chapters and chapters, different verses that do a, a quick recap, like previously on the cross, um, it's kind of take us through the events that happened. So we know that the crucifixion took place at the time of the Passover, just to set the scene. Jerusalem was packed with visitors where people would all come for the festival. And Jesus, if you remember, he had that Passover meal that was the Last Supper. He's in Gethsemane, the trial at night, Herod, Pilate, back to, Herod, back to Pilate. So we're going to look at this. And Jesus, at this time, warned his disciples what was coming, but they couldn't really see it. So let's start off and go to Mark. And mostly this is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and 15. And Mark is one of my favorite Gospels because he does race through everything. I, I really quite like that. So are you ready? Buckle in. Let's uh, have a little preview of why Jesus is at this point. <clears throat> now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. 
While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Jesus said to those around him, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So you can see Jesus here is telling his disciples all the time what's to come. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And if you remember, they share the Passover meal together, which was the Last Supper. Then they all go out together to Gethsemane to pray. And while they're there, Jesus, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep Keep watch. As we know, in that night in the garden, suddenly is betrayed. Judas, Judas comes and kisses him, and he is arrested. A crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. They grabbed hold of Jesus, and they arrested him. And it says, then everyone deserted him and fled. To me, this is such a sad moment. Just that one short little sentence. After everything Jesus has done, they all deserted him and fled. And then an illegal trial takes place at night. They weren't allowed to try someone at night, but they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. They weren't supposed to be there at night. This was illegal. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as we know later, Peter denies him and runs away as well. This is what happened when he was there. They have this uh, illegal trial, and it says they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And for us to notice that even before he got to the cross, Jesus went through such terrible abuse. And then Mark 15, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. But when he, Pilate, learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And if you look at the map here, it shows you Gethsemane being taken to the illegal trial, probably at the house of Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas and then up, up, up to the trial there, and then back down to Herod's palace, because he was in um, Jerusalem for the feast as well. He, this is Herod, plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate, picking back up at Mark 15. So now he's back with Pilate again. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And this was release Jesus or release Barabbas. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. And here you've got the religious leaders stirring up the crowd to get the death sentence for Jesus. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now this flogging was called a scourging, which is a death sentence in itself. It's miraculous that Jesus survived it. 
The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. It's interesting to notice that historians say Jesus was crucified on the 3rd of April, 33 AD, and he died at three o'clock. That's six hours on the cross. And we skip to Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, that is a very sobering story. And it kind of puts into context when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. You can see the build-up to this moment. And what does Jesus say? The first thing he says here on the cross is forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. And there there is this earth-shattering event that changed everything, a pivotal moment in history when Jesus, who was sinless, went to the cross to reconcile us to God, And the history that was taking place around them, they were not aware of the consequences or the importance of what was happening right now. They can't comprehend this spiritual event. And Jesus says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And as Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world, out of his mouth comes forgiveness for his executioners, for those around him, for the build-up, and for you and me. So it shouldn't be a surprise, should it, that Jesus on the cross, forgiveness is what comes out of his mouth because he lived it and he taught it. And sometimes what is really in us comes out under pressure, Uh, who we turn to, who we trust in, what's really in our heart. Under pressure, that's what comes out. And under pressure, what comes out of Jesus is forgiveness because he lived it and he taught it, not just in this moment, but in his whole life. And so if this were a film, this is the moment now we go to the flashback of some incidences in Jesus' life where he forgave. And so we're going to go back to a couple of things that show us the forgiveness of Jesus. And the first one that I, that I think of when I think of this moment of Jesus saying, forgive them because they don't know what they do, is the moment when that woman in the temple, the woman caught in adultery, was called out. And this was a very public moment. So we're going to look at a really public incident. So this is so public in every sense. It's meant to expose Jesus. It's meant to shame the woman. And this is John 8. And this woman is caught in adultery, dragged into the courts, made to stand in front of everyone. And I'm like, well, where is the man caught in adultery? She couldn't be doing this by herself. But no, they drag her. And the purpose is to ruin Jesus, to try and catch him out and to get him to participate in stoning this woman to death. And so they expose her publicly. And this is what it says in John 8. This is uh, the account of what happened. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. 
where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the whole group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now let that sink in for a moment. Everyone's thinking, that's me out then. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. This is interesting, the older ones first. If you've lived longer, you're not fighting anymore, you're not pretending you're not a sinner, you know you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. And the young men, I think, were still angry. Until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is such a tender and powerful moment. After the whole crowd's being there, and the anger and the tension, Jesus diffuses it by just like kneeling down, scribbling on the floor. If you're without sin, you know, those without sin cast the first stone. So everybody leaves, and it's just Jesus and this woman left, just the two of them. And he forgives her sins. And in this like tender moment, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. And this is Jesus. This is who he is. We stand vulnerable before him with our sins. We can't say, he made me do it. She led me astray. There's no excuses. We stand in front of Jesus with our sins, vulnerable, no excuses. And he says to us, I don't condemn you, I forgive you, go and sin no more. And this is who Jesus is. He is the one who forgives. And this is why John writes in John 3:16. he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. I think some of the lights have just gone off. I don't know if we can change that. That's great, so I can see my notes. That'd be lovely. So we can see here that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to buy us back to forgive us our sins, that when we come to him and say, yes, Lord, I, I have sinned, I've made mistakes, I've gone my own way, Jesus rushes in to forgive us our sins. And in 1 John 1, 9, uh, John here teaches, if we confess our sins, he is 
faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So you and me, what do we do? We come to Jesus. We confess our sins to him. What happens when we do that? He is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus wipes the slate clean. And with that woman that day, the others all realized that they were sinners. Who were they to judge? But Jesus came and he forgave her and wiped the slate clean. I love the way he just takes the sting out of their anger to make them look within their own hearts. And the woman walks away forgiven and hopefully a changed life. So the second little story or the second flashback I want to go to is Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus has got got to be one of my favorite life-changing stories, I think. And the one I, like, the one I like about this one, it's very personal. It's behind closed doors. And what changed Zacchaeus' life is behind closed doors. So with the woman, it was all public. But with Zacchaeus, it's very personal. It's private. And the gospel requ- uh, records many encounters that Jesus had with people. But when he encountered Zacchaeus, it changed his life. Now, we know that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in the area, in, in Jericho. So he was like the boss of all the tax collectors. And this was a despised job because it was a local doing the work of the occupying Romans. And so he would have been seen as like a traitor. And not only that, he was cheating people. So he was wealthy and rich. So he was a, a traitor and a cheater ripping people off. So he's not a popular man. And remember when he hides up the tree, Jesus comes and looks directly at him. And he doesn't expose him in front of the whole crowds. And everyone's waiting to see what he'll say because they all hate Zacchaeus. And they're waiting to see what Jesus will do. And Jesus makes this radical move in entering into Zacchaeus' life. I love it. He goes straight to the heart of Zacchaeus and invites himself to dinner. So great. And it was the love of Jesus, his attitude, his words of life, not his condemnation, that melted this hard man's heart. Not the condemnation, but Jesus' love and forgiveness. And we see that Zacchaeus had a total life change that affected the whole town. He gave half his wealth to the poor. You imagine some wealthy person in Jericho, like Zacchaeus, gave half his wealth to the poor, and he gave four times as much money back to all the people he cheated. It was like the best savings scheme they'd ever known. They got four times as much back. And it was part of that town story. It got passed down family to family. The, the stories and legends of Jericho and the night that Zacchaeus changed. Let's read it together. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Great word of knowledge that he knew. I mean, either the disciples went, oh, look up the tree, Zacchaeus. Or he had a word of knowledge. And he just looks so personally up into the tree and says his name, And this is what he does with us. He knows you. He knows your name. There's no need to hide up the tree. He knows you. He wants to invite himself to dinner. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
And what is his response? He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I really like this phrase, the guest of a sinner. It's like the title of a book. If I was looking for a new book in a bookshop, it's the kind of thing that might attract my attention, the guest of a sinner. And here is Jesus wanting to be the guest of a sinner. We are all sinners. We have all gone far from God, and he wants to be the guest. He wants it. And we, sometimes you think, like with Zacchaeus, did he have to forgive himself too? That we know Jesus has forgiven us, but did Zacchaeus need to forgive himself? Do we sometimes need to forgive ourselves? That Jesus has forgiven you, but we can't forgive ourselves, and we need to come back again and experience his total forgiveness that we can put our past to rest. And this is why Jesus said, salvation has come today to this house. It's a rescue. It's a turnaround. We are all sinners and all gone astray. But notice that Zac... He welcomed him gladly. He welcomed him. Now, with Jesus doing this work on the cross, it's not like a blanket work on the cross that kind of affects us all. We have to welcome him and receive him. And Zacchaeus could have said, no chance, you're not coming to my house for dinner. How cheeky to invite yourself. But he welcomed him. And in the same way, it's our decision to welcome Jesus, to recognize what he did on the cross. He is full of love for us. He is waiting to forgive us. And we need to welcome him and say, yes, Jesus, I thank you for all that you've done in my life. I want you to forgive me. I want to follow you all my life. I want to lay everything down before you. And when we do this, Jesus comes into our heart and a brand new transaction takes place. And so whether you've known Jesus a long time or whether you're just beginning to learn about him, he wants to forgive us. Jesus, the forgiver, there on the cross, Father, forgive them. With the woman, so public. With Zacchaeus, so personal. He brings his forgiveness into our lives. So lastly, I have a last question, number three. Lastly, what about us, Jesus' disciples? So what about us? Well, we learn that we're forgiven, and we need to remember that message and receive that message that we don't live as if we're not, but we live in Jesus' forgiveness. So we've learned that we are forgiven, but there's another part too. Now at the Last Supper, you know the Passover feast, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he said something to them when he washed their feet. Now this is interesting, that when he washed their feet, we have to understand this is a deep, significant moment. It wasn't like, well, we had a nice dinner, put the spa music on, a little bit of lavender oil, a bit of a massage, wash their feet. It wasn't like a beauty moment or a tender moment or a, let's all relax now in the moment before the grueling stuff starts. But this was Jesus showing, you, if you're going to be part of me, do what I do. I am about to sacrifice everything. And Jesus 
says this to the disciples, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And he wasn't just talking about the washing the feet moment, which he humbled himself to do a slave's job, but rather he's talking about the cross. He's talking about how he would go to the cross and abandon everything and give up everything, his very life, to win us back to God. And in the same way, as we are his disciples, we are to follow him, give him our all, follow him with our life, to sacrifice and to serve just like him. So this is why he turns to the disciples and says, I have set an example for you. And he didn't just mean a bit of talc on your feet. He means the whole serving with his life. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So when it comes to forgiveness, we can see as Jesus forgave, he wants us to forgive. Now, we can rely on Peter to ask the question. Peter asked Jesus direct just to find out if I have to forgive and if I do, how much? Here it is in Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? <laughs> Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 77 times. I think Peter was probably gutted. Maybe, you know, John had got on his nerves a little bit and he's wondering how many times he had to put up with him. And 70 times seven doesn't literally mean 77 times, but forgiveness is a lifestyle. Because I was thinking about this and I thought, Julian and I now have known each other 39 years. And if I was counting, I think we've forgiven each other way more than 77 times in 39 years. So it's not talking about how many, it's talking about a lifestyle of forgiveness. I think the standout moment of Julian forgiving me, he's forgiven me for many things, but the standout moment's got to be when he just bought a brand new car, and um, I was driving it for some reason. He was going on a long journey the next day, and I thought, oh, I tell you what, I will go and fill up his new car um, with petrol so it's ready for him in the morning. Now, uh, this was a diesel car that he bought, so I went to the garage and I filled it up with petrol. And then, thankfully, it was only down in Tesco, so it was only like a mile and a bit to our house. As I was driving it home, something was happening to the car. It became sluggish, hard to handle. I said, I'm not going to get this car home. I don't know what's wrong with it. It's brand new. Oh, thank goodness, it's under warranty. It must be something wrong with it. And it dawned on me, as I got to the little traffic lights by our estate, I realized that I had filled his diesel with petrol. And it was only a few days old. I managed to get it, and I wasn't quite sure now I was at the lights, so I remember somebody saying once, you shouldn't drive it if you do that. But I was like, well, I can't stay at the traffic lights, I have to drive it home now. So I drove it the last little quarter of a mile home, parked outside the house. And I went up to the front door, and rather than just putting my key in, I, I rang the bell. <laughs> and uh, I stood outside the house, and Julian came, and he's like, you all right? You've forgotten your key? And I said, no, no, I've just got something to tell you. Yes? <laughs> this is most strange. I said, I, I just... Uh, filled your car up with petrol. And he's going, oh, thanks, sweetheart, that's great. I said, no, no, I, I filled up your car with petrol. And he's like, great, thanks, because I'm going on the long journey tomorrow. Thanks, very kind of you. No, 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 I filled up your car with petrol. And he went, oh, and he turned around, and he just walked straight back into the house. I was just left at the door. He was like, five minutes. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably like, Father, forgive her, because she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> anyway, he came back to the door and he went, accidents happen. 
don't do it again. <laughs> I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> that is my standout moment where he forgive me, forgave me. But in our everyday relationships, we've got to forgive each other all the time, every day. And it's interesting, when I was looking at this scripture, I was thinking of, you know, like really big things that have happened in our lives that, you know, we might need counseling to get to that place of forgiveness. And I was like looking through it, and Jesus doesn't distinguish between the little everyday irritations and the big things that have happened. He still says forgive. Now, we might need help and counseling and assistance to get through some things, but there's no getting around it. As disciples, we are meant to forgive. And when Peter asks this question, it's on the back of Jesus' teachings. So in Matthew 18, Jesus was teaching this to the crowd. He said to everyone, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. And in this passage here, it talks about if we fall out with someone, if something goes wrong, we sort it out with them first. If that doesn't work, we take a trusted friend or maybe a small group leader. Or if it gets really serious, maybe we go to our church leader to help us. And that's what our church teaching here is in Cornerstone. It's really important that as a body, as a community together, we recognize we're all fallen, we all make mistakes, we all wind each other up. There's always going to be things that we've got to forgive each other for. And what we need to do is follow Jesus' teaching that we sort it out with the person first. We don't gossip the news around and the person who offended us doesn't even know. But we need to respect one another and protect one another. So if there's something that has hurt you, rather than going and telling your friend, you go straight to that person that we respect and protect. And in that way, we build a safe community. And that's what Jesus teaches. And if we have no joy, then we kind of take it up the chain if it's something that involves our church community here of a small group leader or a church elder to come and help us navigate and sort something out. But it's really important that we put this into practice. And so when Jesus was teaching this to everyone, this is why Peter asked, well, how many times do I have to forgive? And really, Jesus is saying, forgiveness needs to be our lifestyle. It needs to be something we practice every day. Now, I know, I'm sure for many of us, I know for myself, over the years, I've sometimes struggled with forgiveness. Sometimes it's been a big thing. Sometimes it's been a little thing. Uh, occasionally, there's been like a, a big issue in my life. I feel like I've forgiven, and then something comes up, and all the old feelings come up, and I have to make that choice again to forgive again. I'm sure you recognize that in your own heart. Sometimes something happens. We felt wounded. We've chosen to forgive, but then something like resurrects that little thing, and we've got to make the same choice again. Father, help me. Help me to forgive. It is a choice. Sometimes it's a decision before the feelings follow. But also daily things. I mean, when we first got married, me and Julian, I, I was so moody, I can't believe it. I, I, he's preaching in Kafili today, so here, thankfully, he's not sitting there nodding, going, yes, absolutely. And, and often it's because I, I didn't know how to forgive quickly. These are some unforgiving tactics we might sometimes employ. See if you recognize if you use any of these. The first one is payback. When we say, I forgive you, but the undercurrent is, but I will pay you back in some uncomfortable way. Now, if we do that, what happens is no one trusts our word anymore. So if we say, oh, it's fine you watch the game. I'm going to go and do this. Maybe our partner or friend isn't sure. Well, is it really fine or are you going to pay me back later? So that's not really forgiveness. Secondly, 
the let it linger attitude, like a bad smell. So we say, okay, I forgive you, but our unhappy attitude is going to linger for quite a while around here, maybe a few hours, maybe a few days even. And so we say, I forgive you, but there's no evidence and we need to be able to forgive quicker that we don't say the words, but the attitude lingers because that's not like real forgiveness. That's not how Jesus forgives us. When we come to him, confess our sins, he forgives us. There's no payback, there's no lingering. There might be consequences to what we've done, but Jesus forgives us straight away and wipes the slate clean. And that's the example we are to follow. And the third one is this. I'm sure you all, we've either done this ourselves or you have a work colleague or someone on a team at work who might uh, express this type of unforgiveness towards you. The passive aggressive person. And this is where they say the words, I forgive you, but passive aggressive is like a secret hostility that might show itself in the silent treatment, stopping communicating, fulfilling tasks poorly on purpose. Uh, the quiet disruptor, always negative, always turning up late, procrastinating, self-pity, withdrawal, all these things can go on. These things are so unhealthy for us. Now, I'm sure we recognize ourselves in these things, and I could list 10, but these are just a few. But being angry all the time affects our lives, and choosing to forgive will release us from that anger. And and if we don't, then it can affect our life and affect our spirit. We can even become ill if we pursue unforgiveness. Unforgiveness towards people in our life creates anxiety. It creates anxiety in us and in others. No one really knows where they stand with you. And it causes tension in our relationships. We can never quite relax because we don't know the, underco the undercurrent, the message underneath. And unforgiveness holds our own hearts hostage. You know, sometimes the person who might have wounded you or hurt you, they're oblivious to it and they're going off living their life. <clears throat> but we, if we don't forgive, are held hostage to that hurt. And when we come to Jesus and ask him to help us to forgive, we experience such a release from that captivity. So let's look at Jesus' example that even on the cross, even as he was nailed to a cross, he made that choice to forgive, even in that moment. And do you remember when the disciples said, how should we pray? Right there in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, he says, our Father who art in heaven, and right in the middle, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That, that is meant to be our daily prayer, that we forgive those who sin against us. So I'm going to end this with a Jesus story. And this is a story that Jesus told in the context of forgiveness. So I've modernized it a little bit. So here we go. <clears throat> a king wants to settle his debts. So he calls in all his debtors. And he calls in a servant who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. This is about half a million pounds, about 20 years' salary. The servant can't pay, and so the king says, you and your wife and your children must be sold into slavery until you've paid me back the half a million pounds. But the servant fell to his knees and said, king, I can't, please, my children, my wife, I cannot ever pay you. And the king looks at him and his heart is filled with mercy and he cancels the debt forever. 
And, and out of his generosity, he says, you owe me so much, but I cancel the debt. Go free. And the servant went away happy. He, his children were safe. His wife was safe. He didn't owe this half a million pounds that he would never be able to pay. And as he walked home, he met another servant who owed him about 100 silver coins, 70 quid. So he grabs him and begins to choke him. You notice the anger in Jesus' story. The anger, this guy is choking his friend. Pay me back. Pay me back the 70 pounds. The servant appeals for mercy. Please, friend, I can never pay you. I don't have 70 pounds. It will take me so long. But he has no mercy, and he throws him into prison. And this action gets reported back to the king. Oops. So he calls the servant he forgave the half a million pound. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And he throws him into prison until he can pay the half a million pound. Now Jesus says at the end of this story, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. <laughs> That's strong words. But what he's saying is this. God the Father sacrificed his very own son. That is without price. And when he sacrificed Jesus, it was to forgive all of us everything we have ever done or ever will do. And all we need to do is come to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. When we come and say, Jesus, forgive me, he gives us everlasting life and his presence now in this life. Who can fathom that? We are forgiven so much. But Jesus is saying, if we turn to our brother and sister and can't forgive them for filling up the car with petrol, how does that compare to being forgiven our debt for all eternity? And this story of Jesus puts it in perspective how petty our little ways are with one another and how we need more of Jesus in our life and more of his strength. And as we follow his ways and learn to forgive one another, we will live a more harmonious life in our job, in our family, with our friends, with our housemates. We will see a new harmony come in as we follow Jesus' way, the way of forgiveness. So to close this... As we approach Easter, just a few weeks away now, let us learn these lessons from the cross this week. The first one, forgive one another. Let's do it. Let's learn to do it better. Let's learn to do it quicker. Forgive one another. And secondly, to welcome Jesus, like Zacchaeus, to welcome him, the friend of sinners, that we may know his forgiveness and experience his love. His love for you is so great there's no need for us to live in guilt and shame, but receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And lastly, I think for us to recognize the very deep sacrifice that Jesus made. He was no small thing. Let's like encounter the cross afresh as we approach Easter, that we are thankful for the sacrifice Jesus made for us. His love for you is beyond description. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can hardly believe how hanging there on the cross, 
you spoke of forgiveness. For all those around you, all your accusers, those who brought you there to that moment, and how you forgive us too. And Lord, we ask that we will experience your forgiveness in a very real way once more. And in this moment, you can, you can sense that the Holy Spirit is here. Some of you, I know, have regrets in life that you can't get over. And Jesus has forgiven you. But just bring that before him. Lord, I ask that all those with like historic wounds, you will come with your amazing power now into their life. They can let it go that you forgive them and that it's in the past and that you will set them free. And if right now, like today, this week, you are struggling with unforgiveness in your heart, let Jesus' story just pierce right through to bring perspective of how much we've been forgiven. Ask Lord Jesus for every person struggling to forgive You'll come with your power. It starts with a change in our thinking to understand what is required of us and how to follow you and your power in us to forgive. And ask that you'll bring amazing power of your Holy Spirit in every heart to forgive those around us. And Lord, we ask that you'll help us to be a forgiving community that we respect and protect and that we put your ways into practice that we can forgive quickly and care for one another. And Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us, the incredible sacrifice. We are grateful and thank you, Lord. And if there's those like watching in line or on the room and you have never given your life to Jesus, this is your moment to say, I, I am like... Zacchaeus, I didn't know Jesus. I'm interested in Jesus. I want his intervention in my life. Just pray this prayer with me now. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you know my name. I ask that you will forgive me all my sins. I ask that you will come into my heart today. Bring your change. I may be born into your family by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to follow you, Lord, all my days. Come into my life that I may know you. Amen. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time and you're in the room, tell the person you came with. If you're online, you can always email us that we can help you. So thanks, everyone. That is part one of Words from the Cross. <laughs>